Welcome to Crawl Space. I'm Tim here today with Lance in the Crawl Space Wormtown Studios. What's up, Lance? Oh, not too much. How are you today, Tim? I'm doing great, especially because we have Brain Scratch himself, John Lorden, on the line. What's up, John? Tim and Lance, thank you so much for having me on. Hey, thank you for joining us via Skype here, nestled in our Crawl Space studio, Wormtown. What do you think of Wormtown so far? I'm sorry, I don't think I know what that is. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. Most, Fair enough. Most people don't. Uh, yeah. What is what is what is it? You got to clue me in now. Worm Wormtown is the nickname given to the city in which our crawl space studio is located. Uh, oh, gotcha. Yeah, there's many theories onto where the origin of Wormtown uh, derives from. Um, one of them is uh, a giant worm that comes out during the floods. Uh, that's the one that I like to. Uh, subscribe to so um and it, it doesn't really wreak havoc but it uh it um you know poses for a lot of instagram pictures <laughs> yeah gotcha. and, and most people say it was coined by a dj in the late 70s having to do with the music scene in worcester mass but oh interesting everyone but, doing the worm yeah gotcha. yeah but it was probably the giant worm Probably the giant worm, or the fact that Tim likes to do the worm down the hallways <laughs> before he enters into the uh, into the space. Well, you guys got to get footage of that up on uh, Twitter. Stop! I need to see that. That's that is a Patreon special. <laughs> yeah, you gotta pay for that one. <laughs> you gotta pay for that. <laughs> so, uh, so we met you at CrimeCon this year. It was a lot of fun. Any? Um... Yeah, definitely. That was uh, a very cool. One of the highlights for me was uh, getting to meet you guys and just getting to meet everyone. It's such. It's an interesting community that we're a part of. Um, we've got a lot of people kind of similarly focused in terms of caring about others and trying to help in some way and raise exposure to cases and things like that. And it was great just being able to meet everyone face to face and, you know, trade handshakes and stuff. It was cool. Really was great to to talk to you. And I, and I know we had messaged uh, about having you on Crawl Space before we ever met, which was which was cool. And then when we found out you were there, it's like, we got to get you on. And then I called you Jordan. <laughs> I was like, <laughs> I was like, Oh, Jordan. And we were rolling, uh, talking, I think to Justin from the generation Y when I did it. And, yeah. uh, I watched your show. I, uh, I've messaged you calling you John in the past, but yet in that moment I called you Jordan. But then I realized like, I didn't, I didn't feel that bad about it because it's not so much of a deviation from his actual name, John Lorden. <laughs> right. It's, it yeah. makes sense. And guys, I've heard it my whole life. Okay. So, yeah. That, yeah, yeah, that's what I was going to ask. Okay. Is and it... and Lorden isn't exactly a common last name, so it's more common for people to think of Jordan. So I, I totally get it. Well, this is, this is definitely going to make life easier here at the Crawl Space Studio because every day since then, Tim has come in and like an hour or so into him being here, he just shuts down and he's like, I, I can't get over this time that I called John Lorden Jordan. And then I got to like, I got to bring him back. I got to say, you know, it probably happens to him all the time. So hearing you, you know, accept this, uh, this misstep by Tim is, you know, that's going to save us some, uh, some heartache yeah, here. Some emo moments. Some emo moments. I think there's only one way we can really make up for that. And that's for me to see footage of Tim doing the worm. <laughs> oh, man. For, <laughs> for 99 cents a month, you can. <laughs> You'll have to wait for the next blood moon. <laughs> Tim only worms during a blood moon. Oh, okay, gotcha. <laughs> All uh, right, well, so, <laughs> it's good to talk to you today, Jordan. Yeah. So, uh, so tell us about Brain Scratch, and uh, and can I call you Mister Brain Scratch? Sure, I don't mind. Um, Brain Scratch is a show. Basically, I started playing around on YouTube for a couple of years, and I was doing kind of what. I was watching, you know, I was trying to get into some comedy sketches and doing uh, song spoofs and stuff like that. But I also had this kind of tone of wanting to talk about things that I found strange or odd and bring some reasonable conversation to those areas. And I found this case um, that I was watching a whole bunch of YouTube videos about. It's the case of a young woman named Elisa Lamb. Uh, that died in Los Angeles and there was some very creepy elevator footage of her and I watched a bunch of videos and I just got really more than frustrated I was kind of angry at how I saw people treating this real story a real tragedy and turning it into fodder for ghost stories and kind of theorizing about you know magical elevator games that teleported her from the elevator to this water tank 
Um, so I really wanted to bring some type of voice of reason to that. I did have questions about the investigation. As a matter of fact, my first video, I'm even trying to tackle the question of, is this real or, you know, is this some type of like Blair Witch wannabe Hollywood thing that was put together? Um, and from that position, I kind of just dove more and more into that case. That's probably the case that I'm still most recognized for. I did, I think 15 different videos on it. There was a wrongful death suit. I went to the one court date that happened for it before the, the judge ba basically bounced it. Um, and from there, I really just wanted to continue doing that. I just wanted to keep looking into um, these cases and sharing my point of view. And the thing about Brain Scratch is it's really a start to the conversation. This is basically a methodology that I built up when I was working in IT uh, in entertainment companies. And I was a business analyst. And I would be asking uh, different business units because I had to understand what their processes were. I kind of made a story of that understanding, but then I would run that story back through them so that they would tell me, oh, you've got all this right, but this part's completely wrong. And that's kind of what brain scratch is for me. It's a start to the conversation. I do a bunch of research. I show it to my audience. And then I ask them, you know, hey, do your own research or bring your own expertise into this conversation. Tell me about it in the comments. And that's how subsequent episodes will come out. Sometimes it'll be based purely on what the audience is bringing to me. Was this just a no-brainer, no pun intended, or maybe there was a pun intended, but was this, uh, <laughs> was this so obvious to you when you first did the Elisa Lamb story after you released it? Did it just start all clicking in your head to incorporate the audience and use this yes. as, yeah, okay, cool, yeah. Tell, tell yeah, and I that. think that was partly because of that IT mindset that I had. Um, I was looking at YouTube as a tool. And if you look at traditional media and how they cover cases, it's a one-way conversation. You know, you watch an episode of Dateline or something, and you're really kind of being force-fed a particular perspective. Uh, usually it's a pretty narrow view of whatever the case they're covering is. Not a lot of room for discussion, and... The presenters, you, you never see these people say, well, it kind of looks like this, but I'm also thinking it might be that. And there is a lot of that consideration when you're seriously investigating these cases. You don't always know, you know, it went from A to B to C. Sometimes there's extra steps in there and it's worth talking about those steps because sometimes it seriously changes the scope of the case. And you just said that uh, you, you're using YouTube is that as a tool is that tool like we we know that because we we met you and we know that you are a snappy dresser so people get to see how snappy <laughs> of a dresser you are by watching youtube what is the difference though between that and say doing a podcast i think the the good thing about youtube in particular is uh first of all the visuals in particular with missing persons cases i really feel like youtube has a leg up uh, and don't get me wrong, I love uh, The Vanished Podcast. is probably one of my favorite podcasts. Yeah, it's great. Uh, the Trail Went Cold. Uh, there's a lot that I have a lot of respect for. I use them as sources. They get great information, great interviews. So I, I, I definitely recognize all that. But there's a fundamental, particularly with missing person cases, that you need to see the person. If you're really asking for the audience's help, they need to have some type of visual reference to this is what the person actually looks like. So I think YouTube is naturally a better fit in particular for missing persons cases. Other cases, unsolved murders and stuff like that, I think it's helpful to sometimes be able to show a map, you know, to say uh, we know that the guy went here on foot and, you know, take your audience through that so they can kind of see it for themselves. You know, oh, did we notice there's a, a video camera over there? I wonder if they got footage from that video camera. Um, but when it boils down to it, it's really about sharing information and making it accessible in a way, uh, where people can consume it the way they want to. People have been bothering me for a long time about having a podcast version uh, of brain scratch. Yeah. That, that and, was what I was just about to ask you about. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I don't know if I'll do it quite with brain scratch. I have this idea where maybe I'll go back to old cases and kind of, uh, rewatch them. And that way, if there's anything that's visual, I can kind of explain it to the audience as I'm going through it in a podcast version. Um, that might be coming down the pipe a little bit later, but yeah. I'm definitely working on a pod podcast that should be debuting September 1st. Oh, great. 
it's going to be a cooperative thing that I'm doing with another YouTuber. Her name is Danielle Hallen. Oh yeah. Yeah. Wonderful. Yeah. And she's, um, she's a really popular YouTuber. She's really exploded on the scene over the past, uh, year. Really her audience is just jumping and, and increasing in size exponentially. So we figured out a show format, um, that we're going to do with each other. Uh, we do live apart from each other, so we won't be able to, you know, get together in a studio, but I've kind of worked out all of the mechanics on the tech end for that. So, so is this going to be strictly audio podcast form or is it going to be on YouTube as well or both or one of the other? Both. Yeah. Both. We're okay. going to do both. On there you that. go. Yeah. 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 Both is the way to go, I think. And I think yeah. you should upload your old brain scratch episodes uh, on to to Apple Podcasts and other uh, other podcast listening apps because I listened to part two of the Smiley Face Killers on the way in today while I was driving, so I couldn't look anyway. I, I think you would right. open it People up. People tell to me that all audience. the time. Yeah, that the, yeah. they'll actually just leave it run and treat it like it's a podcast. Uh, yeah, which but, is... but you're draining people's batteries, John. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> my face has to be seen, even if they're not looking at it. My face is blaring away in their car. The, um, this is just an intervention. We just wanted to call you on here to tell you you need to do this. We have a lot, lot look, of people. We've seen a lot of comments online, a lot of people yeah. tweeting about this. So we just felt like we needed to intervene. Uh, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I need help, guys. <laughs> no. Um, so this is a full-time job for you, though, right? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I, I kind of treated YouTube like that. My last... Um, IT job in the entertainment realm was working with uh, Cirque du Soleil on a show that they did in Hollywood at the Dolby Theater. And during that time, this weird transition kind of happened where uh, we knew the show was closing. It wasn't doing great financially. And uh, cast members started coming to me and they're like, hey, John, I want to do a video for you know our anniversary or hey, we're closing the show. Let's do a bunch of sketch videos about what life is like backstage. So it kind of pulled me into that way. And Cirque was so good about their creative process. They really were a company that wanted to foster that within everyone and give room for everyone. And, uh, I just made the decision after that. I was like, I've got to make this work. You know, I'm, I've, I've got to aim in that direction, figure out what it is the audience wants me to do and go for it. And that was part of playing around with YouTube. You know, you start with doing what you want to do, and then at some point you bump into what the audience wants you to do. And when you recognize that, if you grab onto it, then That's interesting. you go for the ride. I like that. We just bulldoze right through it. <laughs> <laughs> some people do, absolutely. Or, or they try to and they don't get very far. I've seen that also. One other thing I wanted to bring up about YouTube in particular is uh, the comments. Because it's all in the same place, because people are watching the episode and then they roll right down and they see an ongoing discussion about it. I do think there's a benefit to that. And time and time again, I'm contacted by uh, family members, particularly with the missing persons cases, but sometimes with the unsolved murder cases as well. And they will talk about how wonderful the community is of, of watchers that I have and all the comments that they read through. And mm -hmm. sometimes those comments have thoughts that they haven't considered and things like that. So I do think just having that platform of it all being in one place uh, is also beneficial. And that's really part of what I was trying to exploit with Brain Scratch as well. I think that's a great point because w one of the issues, if if there are them on uh, in the medium of podcasting alone, is that there's really no one place you go to comment about it. You know, there's Facebook, there's Twitter, there's Instagram, there's YouTube. And, and that's actually one of the reasons we upload all of our audio to YouTube is to see what people are thinking because you get more comments on YouTube than anywhere else. Absolutely. Right. You Absolutely. got a, you got a collective uh, of, of comments right there as opposed yeah. to, you know, you get a little, get a little here in your uh, inbox with your email, you get a little through Twitter, you get a little on iTunes with the YouTube one, it's all sort of uh, consolidated. For each episode, too. For each episode, yeah. yeah. And in terms of it being some type of like a historical record, I mean, especially for someone that has reviewed hundreds of cases at this point, um, it's really easy for me to then go to that specific video if I need to refresh on something uh, or to see their conversations about that one specific topic. It's just, it's all kept in one place really neat where I can't do that on Twitter, you know, unless I try to get them to hashtag every individual episode. Well, unfortunately, Tim and I have faces for podcasting. So the YouTube <laughs> industry is going to have to just deal with our logo. 
<laughs> I don't know, guys. I, I thought uh, when I met you, I was like, you know what? These guys should be on YouTube, man. All you need is a snazzy jacket, and uh, you're good to go. <laughs> well, sometimes we have, we have full video, yeah. yeah. Off, yeah. off, off air, you can recommend where to buy these jackets. <laughs> like, <laughs> As Absolutely. much as Tim was talking about messing up your name, I've been talking about your jacket. <laughs> <laughs> but what are we talking about here today? So we would love to talk to you about the smiley face killer theory. And we we do a series, or we have done a few episodes in what kind of runs up against this. And, and we kind of got to a point in, in covering what we're, we were calling the Vanishing Men of Boston that we we didn't really know where to take it and we were getting so many comments about the smiley face killer theory that we just needed to hash this all out on the air and it does seem like there are a lot of similarities between what we cover and the smiley face killers and it almost seems like it's a part of it it's just, I I just I know that smiley face killers is kind of uh regionally based at least from the work of these New York City detectives is that correct somewhat but it's it's pretty wide and quite honestly i've heard of smiley face cases um even in other sections of the world i think finland had one uh, spain had yeah. something that someone thought was a smiley case uh as far as i know from their particular theory i think it covers 11 states 25 different cities now what is for those people who don't know what what is the smiley face killer or who is the smiley face killer it's a theory mainly um that was put forward by two retired nyc uh, detectives uh, who are now working as private investigators as well uh, kevin gannon and anthony duarte and the theory was originally put out i think it was in 2008 and what they were finding was they were looking into cases where Primarily college age men uh, were drowned uh, and their bodies were found typically with no uh, marks on them or no reason for the death. And they started noticing in some of those locations that there would be a smiley face uh, graffiti painted on an object within a location of, of where the body was found. So, um, it, it's weird because on the outset, talking about it like that, it sounds almost like I'm trying to set up a villain for Batman or something when <laughs> yeah. I'm talking to you guys about it. Right. Uh, but then when you start looking into the logistics of how they put this theory together, it gets really shaky. And law enforcement that is dealing with some of these cases has spoken out pretty strongly against the thought that there is you know, some type of central killer that's doing this. And even when we're talking about we're talking about a 10 year time frame even a little more, 97 to 2008, 11 different states, 25 different cities. Uh, the thought that it's one person that's doing all that, uh, you know, I suppose you could say it's a truck driver or someone that travels as an occupation or something like that. But uh, it's, it's a pretty tough theory to swallow just on the outset. But it is playing into something that's very hard to understand, and that is why are so many men, particularly young, healthy men, drowning shouldn't they be able to you know swim get to shore get themselves out of it why are they being found with no real good reason for uh, for them being dead so how many of these men are attributed to these drowning deaths is there an their estimate theory it's strange because their theory states that it's 40 deaths but of those 40 if i remember correctly i think only 12 were actually found with smiley faces and, you know, previously working in IT, this is something I've worked with data a lot and trying to group data and, you know, relay it back to the business and make sense out of it. This is something that kind of bothers me, because if the if the theory you're putting together is someone is killing people and they're leaving a smiley face mark behind, I'm not going to count any of them that don't have that smiley face mark. So I don't know how we have. 40 deaths, but only 12 smiley faces. Yeah. It just it, it doesn't line up in terms of it being a, a solid theory for me. See what you're saying there. And the, the number that they started looking at it was, was much greater, right? Like it was just all the accidental deaths in these areas, and then they, 
they narrowed it down to 40 suspicious ones or ones they didn't consider accidental. I'm sure they did more research because one of them was writing a book on case studies in drowning forensics, almost like a, I think it was uh, Gannon that was writing that book and almost like it would be a, a teaching manual for other police departments to use. So yeah, I'm, I'm pretty certain they had more, a bigger sample set to look at than that. And if you just look at the numbers of uh, drownings that happened, they certainly did. Uh, 10 people die daily from drowning. And there's a very strange aspect in that eight of those 10 will be men every single day. Uh, only two of those 10 will be children. So when we start looking at it statistically, you've got a giant sample set that's happening here. And then if you're trying to pull out, you know, specifics to fit a theory, I think it's pretty easy to do that. The question is to then take that theory and to run some tests against it to see if it really stands up. Do you think the information that's put out there with, uh, you know, even this episode, do you think this adds to the bad information? Do you think it adds to any sort of folklore that's happening right now? Because I know that there was a movie made about it. So, or wasn't there called Smiley or something? I don't know Might if that was something. specifically about the Smiley Face Killer. But do you feel like all of the talk about it is more encouragement to perpetuate the the legend of it when it really isn't anything? Or do you think that there is something there? And the more you talk about it, the better. And that perpetuating language is just sort of collateral damage. I do think that there is value to talking about it because... I think people need to have conversations about trends like this so they can understand why these things happen. I mean, we're humans. We look for trends. It's kind of how we live our lives. You know, um, if I do something and I keep realizing there's a bad result when I do that thing over and over again, I'm going to recognize that trend and I'm hopefully going to change what I'm doing. So I do think there's value in talking about it because I want people to understand that even though these are people we should trust, we're talking about, you know, previous detectives, guys that have experience in this area. It doesn't mean that everything they say is going to be bulletproof. It doesn't mean that it's all going to be, you know, completely factual. And while the details of each individual case are factual, we're talking about real lives that have ended in this kind of strange way. The thing to look at is, is there a bigger trend that kind of explains that. And that's why I bring up the point about, you know, how many people die daily from drowning and how many of those are men and alcohol plays a significant factor in those deaths as well. So it's something, and that, and that's a worldwide thing. I mean, there's, there's kind of a version of this also happening in the UK where they consider it the canal pusher. There's, there's this, the story there, the folklore around that is that someone is literally pushing Primarily, once again, college-aged, young, healthy men into the canals, and then they're drowning in the canals. Um, so we see this. as, And if you take these, these kind of folklore pieces away from it and you just look at the stats, I do think there's something to be spoken about there. And it's about the health and safety of these young, sometimes college-aged guys that are possibly going out and drinking too much. Uh, slipping away from the party that they're with without telling people where they're going in some cases. And then for some reason, one way or another, winding up in a body of water um, and, and losing their life. That's something that I brought up in the original videos as well. I really wish that the conversation around things like this would start moving towards those realities and helping to educate, um, particularly with this, we're talking about college age guys. Hey guys, be careful. If you're out there, you know, uh, if you want to walk home alone, maybe you shouldn't. Maybe you should wait for a friend, you know, get a lift, get an Uber, consider something else, even if it's close by. And I live now in Minnesota, so I really have a bit of a different perspective, even than when I recorded those episodes uh, three years ago. Um, being out here and being in the weather that's out here and how many water sources are out here. I mean, I could, uh, you know, I can drive a mile and probably run into three water sources that are significant enough that you could hide a body in them or you could fall in them in some way. Uh, when the snow hits and the rain comes down and there's ice everywhere, it gets very slippery. So I, I now kind of understand that on the outset, it seems kind of strange, all these guys falling into water sources. But now that I've lived in it for a little while, it's like, oh yeah, you have to be careful out here just as it is. Land, right. land of a thousand lakes. Yeah. Yeah. The number, some of the numbers do make sense as you say. Um, a, lo a lot of these accidental deaths that we're talking about here are men. 
Uh, maybe that's not a coincidence. You know, that's it's because 80% of accidental drownings are men. So that that would be largely in line with yeah. With if those if they came to us and said, "We know what the norm is," you know, we know that eight out of ten men are drowning, but in this particular area, it's ten out of ten men. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Then it it would be different because you're able to say, "Okay, they're comparing it against the norm, and they're saying there's something abnormal here." But in these types of groupings and. I'm not saying Kevin Gannon and Anthony Duarte are the only guys to do this. I see these types of groupings all the time, not just from uh, previous law enforcement turned authors, but also just from regular citizens. You know, all of a sudden they'll pipe up, hey, did you notice all these kids that went missing in D.C.? Or, you know, right now it's Iowa, you know, 40 people missing in Iowa. It's so strange. Well, is it? Because we're missing that other part of the conversation about what's the norm for that area. There was, however, a member of Congress named Sam Graves who wrote to Robert Mueller in 2008 and was concerned about as many as 12 men from Wisconsin being uh, pulled from bodies of water, drowned, and wanted uh, an FBI investigation opened up into the possibility of a killer. Where Where is the line between that and, say, this Congress, you know, because other members of law enforcement have said it's completely ludicrous, whereas this Congress member says, no, we need to look into it. Where is the line there? What, what did he see that others didn't or vice versa? saw this in particular uh, with the DC teens thing. That's that's something that actually happened a, about uh, maybe a year and a half ago now. Uh, I was being contacted by all kinds of people, and major media was starting to go after this too. It's really a matter of how big those stories get and whose attention they grab and then what those people do with that attention. So in that case, you had them write a letter uh, asking for FBI. Well, the FBI actually did do some research into this and said they don't see any correlation between these cases either. It's tough because, once again, these are people that are trying to help and they hear of a problem that they think is abnormal. So they're trying to do something about helping that problem. And you have to appreciate that. Uh, it's weird because I don't want to like, you know, smack people on the hand for, oh, my God, he wrote a letter and he tried to get someone else to look into it. No, please get other people to look into these cases. But in this case in particular, there's this aspect where it could be kind of harmful to the families of these victims because it creates um, some doubt in their mind about what happened. Maybe, you know, my, my loved one didn't die from a pure accident. Uh, maybe there is some killer that's out there. That's what I always thought anyway. And I've spoken to enough people, uh, particularly missing persons, but also people that have um, lost a family member. And sometimes they don't want to believe those easy explanations. Sometimes um, they want to see that there was some other aspect or something outside of what their loved one had done that risked them in some way. So I understand that, but it's tough because um, I'm very sensitive when it comes to the the family members. I'm really concerned about the ride that they're put on when you have things like this, you know, investigators coming out. I agree. And I also think it's, it can be, potentially a little disrespectful if you write off one of these cases and you say, well, I don't think that was, you know, involved in, in anything suspicious that seemed completely accidental or it seemed sui- like suicide when when these people might disagree, the family members of this victim might disagree. Yeah, it's really hard to use like, gr- you know, a group. It kind of dehumanizes the people when you talk about them in numbers. With the DC teens case in particular, uh, you know, the story there was a bunch of teens, uh, minorities typically were going missing. And I think it was a number of, once again, like, you know, 40 teens that have gone missing in this period of time. And so I started collecting all the media on it. And first of all, the list was changing. I was seeing different names kind of popping on and off this list. So I made a master list of all of the names. And then I tracked each of those cases individually. And I think you raise a very important point, particularly with uh, grouping missing persons. I don't see a great value there because the individual cases deserve the attention and a little screenshot that you get, you know, a tweet on that has 40 pictures of little tiny faces. I don't think it's really helping any of those cases in particular. Uh, in that DC teens case, every one of the children either came back or was found except for one. So something that people thought was a trend that involved, you know, dozens and dozens of people going missing as time progressed, turned out to just be nothing. I mean, just completely normal. One, one kid went missing. 
people love to go towards serial killer. And they love to categorize it all, like you said, all as one and, yeah. and not taking into account any other factors like suicide and or a runaway or, or an accident. You know, it's, it's got to be Which one or the serious, other. are serious, very serious factors. Yeah. And when you look into these cases individually, sometimes you hear details and you're like, OK, yeah, this one in particular, you know, maybe this person wanted to end their own life. Um, so it, it does get tough. And I've seen strange things like this latest one w- about all the people missing in Iowa. Um, you know, th- I'm reading that it's 40 kids that are missing and then I'm being sent screenshots with images of all the missing people. And they've got guys in their mid forties. They have cases that are from 1987. It's like, wait, 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 wait. <laughs> You're telling me that this is a recent run of people missing in this particular area. But then when you start looking into the actual details, it, it's already falling apart. But there is a flip side to this conversation. And that is every now and then these groupings are accurate. Um, but it's it's just more often than not, they're not. Uh, Cabbage Town, Toronto, Canada. Uh, gay men were going missing over a span of several years. Local citizens were saying, hey, something's up here. This is probably a serial killer. Authorities didn't buy their story. And then a few years later, we learn about Bruce MacArthur, who's now up to, I think, eight bodies that they found. This guy that worked as a landscaper and was hiding body parts and planners. So it does go the other direction. And it's strange. That one has started a lot of conversation because these, you know, these are gay men and there's some conversation about where the police not paying enough attention to this because of, you know, them not treating gays the same. Uh, yes, uh, absolutely. Yes. Yeah. Although, right. well, well, uh, of course, police don't want to admit that there's a serial killer in town. Right. I mean, I, I think that's certainly part... that aspect, too. Yeah. Well, I think that's part of the problem or at least the perception that that's the case. Um, and that may might be true. Um, but we, we were talking about the comments earlier and. Every time there's a person who goes missing in Boston, especially if it's a young uh, white man, which is kind of uh, what people have been talking about happening in Boston, there's a bunch of comments about a serial killer uh, being in Boston. Uh, So much so that the police commissioner was asked about it. He said, no, there's no there's no serial killer in town. There's no evidence of that. But people don't believe it no matter what. And I I like what you're saying. And, you know, you, you, you have to. You have to look at these patterns. I mean, someone's going to look at these patterns, right? If it's not law enforcement, it's civilian. They're going to look at these patterns. They're going to document them. And then they should be considered for sure, at least. Yeah, someone needs to. I mean, it's it's just us validating each other as humans. You know, someone thought it was important enough to raise this as a potential issue. Someone else should take some time to hear that, look into it, make a decision about it or release new information about it. Continue that conversation a little bit. But it is a little frustrating because I almost have this instant reaction now, particularly with groupings of missing people where I'm like, oh, here's here's another one. The missing persons groupings are very tough because if you consider a missing person story versus a murder story, uh, there's way less detail. You get to a point where the person disappears and that's it. And sometimes you don't even know, you know, did they leave in a vehicle? Were they taken by someone else? I mean, you have no idea of the conditions of their disappearance in many of these cases. For murder cases, you have a lot more information. You have a body. You have what they did to the body. You have where the body was located. Was it moved? Was it dumped? How was it treated? Um, there's a lot more information to process there. So finding trends in terms of murder cases makes more sense to me. If you find, you know, uh, five prostitutes that have been dismembered and left on the beach in Long Island. Okay. Now we're talking serial killer. You know, this is, this is too much to be coincidental. Uh, and all of them being, you know, wrapped in similar bags. And I mean, it's just way too much to be coincidental. If you're telling me about, five former prostitutes in Long Island that go missing. I can't say that we're looking at a trend that really needs to be grouped at that point because there's so many other considerations we don't know about. You're talking about something that needs to be approached in stages, in responsible steps. Like like okay, they're missing, that's step 1. Let's figure out let's figure out where they came from and let's figure out any commonalities. You know, maybe they work the same area and then you can start putting together these connective uh the the connective tissue of the whole thing. Yeah. And I do think uh, in general that you need to and I don't know what the number is on this, but there should be a certain amount of criteria to line up before you say this is looking like a trend here. 
And in particular with this case, you know, you're talking about 11 different states, 25 different cities. You can't even say that region is necessarily a trend here. Right, because it does spread everywhere. So what right. what would the what would the counter argument to that be? Anybody who is supportive of the smiley face killer theory, how how would they be able to spread this around such a vast area? Um, one theory I kind of kicked around in the video was if this was not an individual killer, some type of mechanism of killing people, you know, and I'm I'm theorizing some kind of dark web type stuff going on here. Uh, some website you go to and you sign up on and it's some circle of uh, I'll take care of your problem. Joe takes care of my problem. Jane takes care of Joe's problem. And we need to leave a mark behind so that we know it's part of this system. So that's kind of the most reasonable. And I don't I don't know how reasonable it is, um, but that's the most reasonable mechanism that I can think of when we're talking about the distance, uh, both. geographically but also in time uh and then trying to tie that to this marker of you know graffiti the graffiti marker thing is a really strange aspect for me i can't think of another case where a killer has left behind graffiti in particular to mark what they have done uh typically from what i've reviewed if murderers want to be known for what they're doing they're going to leave notes or they're going to contact the police with writing or sometimes they're going to send coded messages or they're going to send it to the press or they're going to leave notes in mailboxes and on children's bikes. I mean, I've heard all kinds of different mechanisms for killers trying to get attention, but a smiley face and spray paint just, I don't know, it doesn't quite do it. And there are so many examples of smiley faces. It's such a popular symbol. Yeah, that that's what I was going to say. Isn't it just one of the most popular things that someone would spray paint into a wall or a street or something? Yeah, absolutely. Do a search on smiley face graffiti and go to Google image searches and you're going to be reading for days and just, you know, seeing all these different pictures. Uh, when I recorded the episode, I was living in California in a town called Simi Valley and they actually had a giant smiley face that was burned into the side of a hill. Uh, that was there year round. It was like a chemical burn. I was already kind of, well, you know, is it that hard to find a smiley face close to where these bodies are being found? And then you find out that they really don't even have conditions around the distance. Like some of the smiley faces were found like a mile, mile and a half away from where the body was found. When I moved to Minnesota, I remember one day I was going out for a run uh, and coming back, I saw the back of a stop sign and someone had painted a smiley face on it. And it just reminded me that that symbol is so universal. It's so easy for someone to paint a smiley face. I just, I don't think, once again, I don't think that criteria is strong enough for this grouping. And even if it was, like I said, they're talking about 12 of those cases having smiley faces out of the 40 deaths they're looking at. But did you pick up your pace when you saw that as you were running? (laughs) Did you take it as a warning? No, not at all. all. (laughs) Using those 12, right, your imagination goes all over the place. And I really do like your theory of some kind of interconnected uh, network on the dark web, um, some kind of unconnected psychopaths uh, connecting through this random um, website and sort of doing each other favors. You scratch my back, I'll scratch Ted's. There's no connective tissue there as to how do you know these people. It would make sense of the smiley face being a a token, being a wink to people within that circle. Mm -hmm. I don't think, even if if this was completely legit, I do not think the smiley faces are markings meant to tease law enforcement or to scare the public or something like that. That's, That's why I think that theory is at least somewhat plausible, but there's even things to knock against that. I mean, the, the pictures they took of the smiley faces, you could tell some of them were really old. They had been painted, you know, possibly years before that body was found. There's a lot of problems with this theory once you start cracking in, into the details on it. And once again, like, you know, we've been talking about this for however long now, uh, the individual cases aren't being talked about. It's almost like when you do a grouping like this, you're creating lore about a boogeyman. And that's kind of what people start focusing on. Oh, there must be this guy that 
is, you know, we don't know anything about and he's traveling the states and he's killing people and he's spray painting smiley faces. The story shifts to being about the boogeyman instead of being about the actual victims. Yeah, the, I mean, and the the amount of work that that would take on either one of those theories, if it's a single person, uh, that's an, that's a ridiculous amount of work that that would uh, take to to make all this possible. If it's a network of people, then you're opening up the the the, the secret to potentially dozens of killers. And how do these killers get together? How do they manage to coordinate? And and how do they manage to keep it secret and not with social media go, you know, just try to do their own thing, like go rogue a little bit? It would just take one person to crack in that or it would take one person to come across that service and yeah. to understand what it meant and to release that information. So that's, once again, I don't know how feasible it is. It would have to be like a secret club of some kind or, or something like that. Right. And, and then as anonymous as the dark web can be, you know, law enforcement can still get in there. They can still figure things out. Your theory, I think, is really interesting. But I think when you say dark web, people almost just be like, oh, like, oh, OK, yeah. You know, like I kind of feel like because they don't really know what it is. It just seems like this infinite uh, thing. Like it's not as easy to connect with people i don't think as people think it is absolutely and once again it's uh you know in a way it's kind of purporting that story of of the boogeyman yeah <laughs> but i mean what we do know about it is you know it's, it's basically a part of the internet that most people never see most people wouldn't want to see the types of things that are there stolen information is traded there whenever these big security leaks happen where you know target loses a bunch of uh, people's email addresses and their passwords. Uh, this is the place where you go to to buy those lists or um, to buy, you know, drugs if you want to, illegal drugs online. I mean, it's it's where all the bad stuff's happening. So, yeah, it definitely has that connotation of darkness. But there's still a human element to it. There's still people behind it who are either posting or buying and to not have anybody crack in that in in that circumstance, even in the dark web, seems a little bit far fetched to me. Have you just to shift uh, gears a bit? Have you spoken to any member of the family of one of these young men who went missing, or friends, or law enforcement? Have you had any communication with people close to these uh, missing men or murdered men? Not for these particular cases. I did cover one of them. Um, I think it's the Brian Schaefer case, if I remember correctly. Uh, no contact with the with the family on that one. And it's tough because I actually went looking today to try to find a list of what these 40 cases are. And I, I couldn't find a list. It, admittedly, I didn't have a whole lot of time to do it. But it's one of those things where these are tragedies. I would be leery of reaching out to the family in some of these cases because uh, I, I hope that they are trying to move on with their lives and just struggling with whatever understanding they have of what happened to their loved one is already tough enough without you know, some, some YouTuber coming at them saying, I want to interview you on the channel or something. Typically, uh, my MO is I will do a video about a particular case first, looking at all the available, um, media. And then off that episode, I'll be contacted by family. That's, that's kind of what the, the typical thing is. Every now and then I'll have family that reaches out before I do an initial episode, just because they've heard about me or some friend has told them about me. Uh, and in a few cases, I've done videos with the family right off the bat. But um, more, more often than not, I put a video out first. I usually hear from the family thanking me for trying to help. And then uh, that will sometimes turn into talk about them coming on to give me more information. Is there any one of these young men that you've looked into that is something that you just can't explain or you think that this could have a legitimate connection to a killer, maybe a smiley face killer? Not one in particular, but there is an aspect that I'm still stuck on when it comes to the smiley face killer theory, and that's the uh, lack of marks on their body. And once again, it's, it's kind of hard to do this without going case by case on this. But in general, there's usually no physical trauma found on these bodies. And in one way, that supports the conclusion that uh, nothing happened to these guys. I mean, if someone was trying to drown you, aren't you going to fight back? Uh, in one case, if I remember correctly, there was some hair found in someone's uh, fist, in their clenched fist. Mm -hmm. Yes. Uh, but yeah, but only only in one case. In in most of them, there's absolutely no uh, physical trauma, no evidence that is found. Now, on the flip side, if they fell, 
wouldn't you expect there to be some type of trauma found on them, you know, hitting their head as they're going into the water source or at least scraping themselves up if they're falling possibly down a hill or something like that. So the no physical trauma is an interesting aspect to me because it kind of works against the theory in one way, but it works for the theory in another. Uh, I just reviewed another case. Uh, it's a little bit different. This is uh, the Lauren Ag case. This is a young girl that went camping with several friends at an event in Tennessee called Wakefest. And they set up camp on the top of a cliff. And somehow uh, she disappeared in the middle of the night. She's found in the water uh, the next day. And in that case, it's very obvious that some type of fall happened. Now, admittedly, she's up on a cliff. Uh, but when they find her, you know, the back of her head is injured. The back of her shoulders are obviously injured. Um, so it, it does bother me a little bit that in these cases, we're not seeing some type of clear injury in terms of physical trauma. Yeah, that is uh, that is kind of a, uh, a head scratcher there. Again, no pun intended, but it's a brain scratcher. It is a brain scratcher. Yeah, uh, you gotta you gotta get really under the head. And, yeah, get really <laughs> under, under the skull. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, but you know, like they say, if you're if if you get into an accident, a car accident, and you've been drinking and you're technically drunk, your your body isn't reacting the way a sober body would, and you you hear that a lot that people who get into car accidents who are drunk don't get as injured because they're they're more loose they're 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 not you know their body is intense up they're they're just more loose that could be a factor of why there's some you know someone could fall into the water and just get disoriented and drown without actual physical uh, damage to the body beyond what is normal in a drowning case depending on how intoxicated they are i'm wondering if that has something to do with uh, their ability to drown because um, your, your body has some natural mechanisms where your throat will actually close up to try to stop water from going into it if it senses that you're taking in too much water. People can drown that way also. It's called dry drowning. Um, so I'm wondering just how much of an effect alcohol has in this. And if you're, once again, just looking at the simple stats of you know how many men, how many people daily, how many times alcohol is involved, uh, I'd be very surprised if there wasn't some science to to kind of back that up. I don't know if it slows that reaction down, if there's something about the temperature that might also do it in terms of shocking them uh, for a period of time while they're drowning. I think there's a lot of uh, more science that can kind of be looked at in this problem as well. Okay, John, this, this has been a really uh, great talk. really appreciate having you on. And uh, before we let you go, though, I do want to ask you briefly about Maura Murray, because I knew I know you did uh, cover her case on Brain Scratch. So let's let's hear your thoughts about that without going down the rabbit hole. Let's maybe peek at the rabbit hole briefly, but maybe go down at another time. Broad strokes. Yeah. Um, well, I got to say the the thing that I thought most about just leading up to the interview today was how excited I was to talk to you guys again, because uh, Maura Murray was one of the earlier brain scratch cases. Um, it's a really tough one to understand. Obviously, uh, we've we've got conditions going on there where there could have been someone that did something to her. We have a lot of people that think that she wanted to get away from her life. And we have some evidence that points in that direction as well. But in terms of me researching and even finding uh, true crime podcasts, I think Missing Maura Murray was the first one that I bumped into and I used as uh, a piece of research for my episode. And that, of course, was the first time I was exposed to uh, both of you. Ah, so well, kind of cool. Almost feels like a little full circle that uh, I'm now on your podcast myself. Um, but I really want to thank you guys because you helped introduce me to podcasting as a viable format to podcasting as a deep dive investigative tool, which I think is really cool. And, uh, now I've seen so many other people, we've got a private investigator that just came on my channel uh, last week that is using a podcast to essentially do the same thing, do a deep dive, try to elicit more tips. It's great. Um, and yeah, I thought you guys were really part of the pioneering force and all that. So I appreciate being here. Wow. Well, Thanks we weren't we weren't fishing for compliments, but we'll certainly <laughs> take them. <laughs> now we just need to get you snazzy jackets. That's it. <laughs> Again, off the air. Off the air. We'll talk about. <laughs> okay, okay. We'll talk about what. Uh, unless you have some uh, promotional code you need to use for one of those, <laughs> dress yourself like 
uh, we'll dress you uh, mail delivery services. Yeah, use coupon code BRAINSCRATCH at snazzyjacket.com. <laughs> so ultimately, what do you, this is just my last question, what's your feelings on the work that Gannon and Duarte have done for the Smiley Face Killer? Do you think it's more productive or do you think it's more exploitative? At this point, I, I do feel like it was more exploitative. And, and just because I'm, uh, like I said, I'm a bit more sensitive to the families of the missing people or, or the, the people that have died. You know, I had someone uh, say to me at some point, we were talking about DNA analysis. And there was one case in particular where there's a guy that hid his identity. It's the case of Lyle Stevick. And he basically hid his identity and he wound up killing himself in a hotel and then the Internet kind of caught on to this story. And several years later, they used that same familial match DNA process that's been busting so many cases open lately. Uh, and they identified him. And the analyst that did that got in touch with me. And uh, I was asking her, I'm like, do you feel like uh, it was a good thing? Because didn't weren't the steps that he took clear about him wanting to hide his identity. And if he was disassociated from his family, did he really want them to know that this is how um, he ended his life? And she said, you know what? Uh, he's gone at this point. And right now his family's still here and they're hurting and they're not knowing where he was. So how can I question that? Of course, I think that this was worth the work. And that's kind of how I feel about this case as well. These families are hurting, do they need to be taken on this ride of, uh, hey, we think that, you know, this simple death that you think happened to your family member is actually much more complex, involves a potentially global conspiracy or some type of boogeyman murderer situation. Um, I don't think that's the best thing for those families. And I don't think it's the best thing necessarily for the public. If they want to write a movie script about it, go for it. Um, but trying to pass this off as something real. And then they kept doing this thing about saying that they had this big announcement coming up, big announcement coming up, and quite honestly, nothing ever came out of that. If these guys were really interested in these cases and these cases were connected, all they would have to do is crack one of them. person goes missing, their loved ones often find themselves overcome with worry and grief. Bruce Maitland started the 501c3 nonprofit organization Private Investigations for the Missing because he knows this feeling all too well. When Bruce's daughter Brianna disappeared in March 2004, he was surrounded by licensed private investigators dedicated to finding her. Now his mission is to provide dedicated private investigators at no cost to other families of the missing, desperate for answers but without the financial means. Private Investigations for the Missing needs your help. To read the mission statement, make a donation, and keep up with our blog, visit us at investigationsforthemissing.org and follow us at PI for the Missing on Twitter and Facebook and Investigations for the Missing on Instagram. Because forever is too long to wait. <laughs>